Thank you, Dale. We are continuing in Exodus, and uh, just by way of reminder, uh, there's a reason that we kind of walk through books of the Bible like this. Um, it's because we believe that this entire book is God-breathed and is profitable for instruction, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, right? Which is what Second uh, Timothy tells us. So uh, we believe this is valuable and this is worth looking at. And uh, I think one of the things that I find preaching through books like this is that when we can slow down and look at it, um, when I have the time to put into it, I see more of its value um, than if I just skim over it or if I just, you know, just glance at what the topics are or something like that. And so my hope is that we're continuing week after week to say, wow, look at the riches in this passage that I might have skimmed over, but there is significance here. And so um, we're seeing that, and I, I hope you've been encouraged by Exodus. I know I have. And, and uh, this week in this passage, we're really covering chapters 28 and 29 today, um, really are another passage where you see so much that maybe you wouldn't have seen just from an initial glance. So uh, as we do this, we, we need help. So let's pray and ask for God's help in this. Our Father, we need you. You know that our hearts would easily get dull and even bored with your word. God, help us to come with faith, believing you've put these words in your, in your book for a reason. Help us to see that and learn from it and to grow through it and to be formed into Christ-likeness through this and to see Christ in this. Please do your work through your word this morning by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our society and culture tends to be pretty pragmatic when it comes to designing things. Um, you might think of buildings in particular. Um, it used to be in maybe medieval times, lots of public buildings, churches and sorts were, were built to, to have designs that meant something, right? There was a lot of symbolism involved in the architecture. Now we just need a building, we build a box, right? Um, we're pretty pragmatic. Uh, may, maybe it's me too, but I, I just tend to think, what's the, what's the most practical way to do this? What's the most comfortable way to make a piece of clothing or whatever, right? Um, that, that's my focus. That being said, there are still places, even in our culture, where we see symbolism, where we are trying to communicate truth or meaning through certain symbols. When a groom places a ring on the finger of his bride and recites a vow, there is a symbolism there, there is meaning in that. When an elected official places their hands on the Bible to take an oath of office, there's, there's something being communicated in that action. Or when a crowd stands and put their, puts their right hand over their heart and looks to the U.S. flag during the singing of the national anthem, there's, there's something being said through what they're doing. Or you might think of when a graduate moves their tassel from the right side to the left side at their graduation. There's a symbolism going on there. 
Some of these are fairly obvious to us in meaning, uh, others not so much, and some even seem a little strange, like I'm, I still have no idea what the tassel's about or where that came from, but, but it means something, and, and, but it makes us ask, like, why do we use symbols? And, and you could go across all cultures and know and see that there, there's symbolic ceremonies and clothing and buildings and physical objects that are used to communicate or physical actions that are used to portray truth and meaning. Why, why do we do this? Why not just say it? And this goes not only for things in our culture or various cultures around the world or history, it goes for this passage today. There's all sorts of symbolism and meaning and significance in the various clothing in chapter 28 and the various parts of the ceremonies in chapter 29. So, so why? Why the symbolism? I think part of it goes back to this reality that that we are embodied beings, like God has made us physical creatures. In the beginning, He he made us physical beings, and therefore we understand a physical world, and, 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 and we are sensory physical creatures. We understand truth. We understand meaning, and we learn and remember truth, not only through words, but through pictures and objects. In fact, I think at times there is a depth of meaning in symbols and ceremonies that you just don't get other ways, or at least a combined depth that comes when you combine words with symbols and ceremonies and such. You put these together and you get a depth of meaning and it reaches into us and we learn it in a way we wouldn't through just words. On top of this, particularly when it comes to our passage this morning in ancient Israel, it's helpful to remember that the vast majority of people in ancient Israel probably did not read. Theirs was a verbal culture where they they learned through the spoken word and through word pictures, through symbols, which is what we have here. And so as we come to the content of these chapters, and we've been looking at the tabernacle and today at the priestly garments and the ceremonies that go into installing the priests, all of it is meant to teach something. It's meant to get something deeper into our hearts than would happen if we just had words teaching us. We're meant for these truths that are in these symbolic clothing and ceremonies to get into us in a way that we would miss otherwise. So, we want to get to that meaning today. What what is all this about? What does this mean? What's the significance of it? Before we do, though, I want to just give us a flyover of these chapters, again, to to give us an idea of what's going on in these chapters, and then we'll get into the significance of it, okay? So, chapter 28 is exclusively focused on the garments or the clothing of the priests. At this point, this, the priesthood just made up of Aaron and his four sons. So there are a number of items in this collection of clothing that the priests would wear as they went about their priestly duties. The first is the ephod. Now, ephod is a really strange word to us. It is, was probably a kind of apron that went over and covered especially the front of the person. It was to be made of blue, purple, and scarlet linen. 
Um, interestingly enough, simil- very similar to the curtains that, and cloth that we saw in the tabernacle itself. And where the straps of this apron, you think about an apron, and where the straps came together on the shoulder, there were to be two stones, onyx stones, and on each of these stones was inscribed six names of the sons of Israel, so twelve total, six of the tribes on each one. And then over the top of the ephod, so you have this apron-like thing, right, and you can see a little bit in this illustration here, over the top of that would be a breastplate. Okay, and it would just have a square, kind of rectangular square section that would just be over the chest. And this breast piece, this piece of fabric, had three rows of, or four rows of three stones. And each stone, so that made 12, right, if you're doing your math, I know, I know it's hard for some of us, but three rows of four makes 12. You had these 12 stones, and on each stone was inscribed one of the names of the sons of Israel or the tribes of Israel. So think about Israel at this point. They were all organized by tribe, right? And there were these 12 tribes. They marched. At this point, they're marching through the wilderness, and they camped in their tribe. It was part of their identity of who they were. They belonged to a tribe. And so these 12 tribes were inscribed on these 12 precious stones. And then if you look down in verse 31 of chapter 28, you have the robe The robe is to be made of blue fabric, and along the bottom of it were to be these tiny pomegranates, and then these alternating gold bells. Then you had, so you have the robe, and then you had uh, what they call a plate, something like a name plate, really. We think of a dining plate to eat off of, but we're talking about a name plate here that would go across the turban, and we're told that this nameplate would be inscribed with the words, holy to the Lord. It was to be attached, as I said, to the turban, which it kind of had. It seems uh, that the high priest himself, in this case Aaron, would have worn this turban. And then we find this also, in addition to this, in verse 39, there is a coat and sashes and caps other items of clothing. And then in verse 42, there is a description of linen undergarments. That's the clothing of the priests, again, covering all of chapter 28. Pretty significant detail, right? We have 43 verses describing the clothing of the priests. Chapter 29, then, turns to the actual kind of installation, the appointing, the or inauguration, you could say, or ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests. Verses 1 through 9 kind of give the ordination ceremony itself or inauguration ceremony. Aaron and his sons are to be brought to the tabernacle, the entrance of the tent of meeting. They're to be washed, and then clothing is to be put on them. They are then anointed with oil on their head, And finally, they put on the outer coats and the sashes, etc. After that ceremony of the ordination itself, the text turns then to ordination offerings. Okay, there were these offerings. There was to be a sin offering of a bull, then a a burnt offering of a ram, and then a wave offering of a ram. And with each of them, Aaron and his sons would put their hands on the animal's head. And with each of them, something was to be done with the blood. At different times, it was to be thrown against the side of the altar or 
Uh, it was to be put on different body parts of Aaron and his sons. We'll look at more of that in detail. And then the meat and the various internal organs with the different sacrifices, different things were to be done with those things. It's a lot of detail again. Again, let me remind us that in all of this, there is a meaning and symbolism. Truth is being enacted and communicated with Aaron and his sons and Israel, and eventually, truth is being communicated to us through all of this. Now, we're going to get into what truths are being communicated, but we're going to, again, stay fairly broad. There are details here that we could get into that would really get into a lot of a lot more detail, and we're just going to kind of scratch the surface. We're going to get the big picture, and we want to make sure we're not speculating here. Sometimes you get into things like this, and, and people want to give symbolism to each one of the different stones and the precious metals and what those means, and I'm not sure the Bible explains that, and I'm not sure we can say with any confidence the significance of those. We know they're precious stones, which tell us something of their value and, and maybe points to the value of the people of Israel, but we don't want to read into the meaning of each of those stones. The text doesn't give us that information. So we're going to stay at a fairly high level, and we're going to look particularly at uh, three ways that priests are described, kind of, kind of a description of the priest's role. Priests are appointed, number one, set apart, number two, and they are representatives, number three. So priests are appointed, set-apart representatives. Number one, priests are appointed. Look with me at chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, to bring them forward. Appoint them. They are to serve me as priests. God chose this family line to serve in the priestly office. God chose them for this role. They didn't choose it. They didn't get elected by the people. Yahweh appointed and ordained them. And so think of that ceremony at the beginning of chapter 29 where they are cleansed and they put on those robes. In that ceremony, they are taking on that role as priests. They are receiving the appointment from Yahweh to serve as priests. As the oil pours over their heads, they are receiving those responsibilities to serve God's people as their priests. You might parallel it with an officer being given their badge when graduating from the police academy, or a doctor receiving their coat at the white coat ceremony. They are being appointed to this, and they're being appointed by God. He wants them to serve in this way. This anointing, we're going to look at that one a little more closely. The anointing may have another symbolism involved in it. You think again, here they are, they, they've been washed, and then these men have the clothing put on them, and then this oil is poured over their heads. What's going on there? Well, again, it's this appointing, you're the one for this. But perhaps even more than that, it also may have to do with God pouring out an enabling 
power on them, or even pouring out His Spirit to empower them for this task. We see this idea of anointing repeatedly in Scripture. This may be one of the first times, but we see it again and again, an anointing of somebody. And you see this, you hear this in broader Christianity at times too. And, and sometimes it's used kind of I don't know, almost mystically, but it has a point to it. And the point is, God has chosen these men to serve as priests. They're chosen and they're empowered for this task. We see it often in the rest of Scripture, not only with priests, but also at times with prophets. And then most commonly, we see it with kings, where kings are anointed. And it's just the symbolism where the oil is put on them. It's a symbolism you're chosen. This one has been chosen and empowered to serve Yahweh in this role. And they're anointed as a priest or anointed as a prophet or a king, right? Now, over time, this idea of anointed one came to have a messianic flavor to it. In other words, it spoke of the Messiah, the Savior that would come. In fact, the word Messiah actually means anointed one. So what's the idea? Well, we anointed, you know, in ancient Israel, you'd anoint priests and prophets and kings. But there was this idea that there was an ultimate anointed one coming. There's an idea we need an ultimate anointed We need the chosen one, the prophet, the priest, the king. We need the ultimate anointed chosen one, Savior to come. We need him. And there was an expectation that began to arise that there would be one who would come. Listen to Psalm, Psalm 2. I'm going to read three different passages for you that points out how this expectation of a, an ultimate appointed one, anointed one, would come. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Psalm 45, verse 6, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And then one more from Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now here's the deal. This expectation that began to be built of one that God had chosen and appointed and anointed as it built, it built towards the coming of Jesus Christ. Each one of the three passages I just read in the New Testament is applied to Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is used in Acts chapter 4, where Peter applies it 
to Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one that the kings of the earth began to rage against. Psalm 45, where it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, is quoted in Hebrews 1 and applied to Christ to say, no, He is exalted. He is separate from and above all of the other, all of the other heavenly beings. He is God Himself. And then Isaiah 61 Jesus himself opens and reads and applies to himself in Luke 4 and says, I am the one the Lord has anointed to be the Savior. The eternal Son was anointed by the Father to be the Messiah, the anointed one that we needed, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. We don't look for another. We aren't seeking the next savior politician or celebrity pastor or best-selling author or Instagram influencer, we have the anointed one, the chosen one, Jesus Christ. He is the one we need. So a priest was set apart. Secondly, I'm sorry, a priest is appointed. Secondly, the priest is set apart. He is appointed and he is set apart. So Aaron and his sons were not to be just common men. They were to be set apart for a specific purpose. Everybody else did their thing. They, they shepherded sheep and you know, farmed and so forth. The task of the priesthood was unique. And the priests were to be unique. They were to be set apart for a specific purpose. Or to, be a, to put it another way, they were to be holy. That's what the idea of holy means. It means to be set apart. You begin to see this in chapter 28, verse 4, where he lists out the, the different aspects, the different pieces of their clothing. And then look at the middle of verse 4. It says, they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They were to be holy. They were to be different from the normal. And you can see that when you look at the instructions for making them. Not everybody was wearing garments like this, right? Woven with these colored linens, fine linens, skillfully woven together with this, the, these precious stones on them and so forth, right? Not, this was not ordinary, common stuff. This was holy. It was different, other. And then think about that plate. That, remember, remember that plate that was over there on the turban? What did it say? Holy to the Lord. What's the idea there? Well, remember what holy means. We, we said it's, it means to be set apart, separate. And the idea is that this man wearing this name badge on him is set apart. He's, he's, he's someone different. They're set apart for Yahweh, for His service. Think about when you go to a party and there's you know, a million people there and, and they have a, a stack of cups and they have a pen next to it. And you're supposed to write your name on the cup. And what's the idea? This is Tim's cup. It's just for him. It's not for anybody else and your dirty mouths to put on it, Right? It's just for Tim, for him to drink out of. 
because I don't want your germs, right? It's to be separate from all of that. That's the idea for the priesthood. The priest himself is to be set apart from the sinful, staining, uncleanness of the world, set apart for Yahweh, to be His, to be for God's use alone. That's the point. You see this theme of holiness in another interesting place here, at the end of chapter 28, in the undergarments. So what's undergarments have to do with it? It helps to go back and look at some of the language here. Look at chapter 28, verse 42. It says, You shall make them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. It shall be a statue forever for him and for his offspring after him. Okay, what's going on here? It seems that this has something to do with the Garden of Eden and the concept of nakedness that is drawn out there. It's not that our bodies are sinful somehow, but God gave us an image in our nakedness and in clothing. It gave, he gave us an image of our sinfulness and shame. And it's an image that tells us that without something covering us, we're exposed, and our sin is exposed, and it's ugly, and it's shameful, right? And it's just a symbol to remind us of that. And same with the priests here. It's not that our bodies are evil, it's an illustration of us being exposed before God and Him seeing our sin. We need a covering. We need to be covered if we're going to be entering into the presence of an infinitely holy God. This is also why they were to be washed before they put on the priestly garments. It was to signify a cleansing, a, a washing from the stain of their sin and a cleansing so they would be holy before the Lord. And then, of course, there are the sacrifices as well, right? Before they perform sacrifices for other people, they were to perform sacrifices for themselves. And what's interesting is with each of the three sacrificial animals, there was a bull first and then two rams. With each of them, they were to, all of the priests were to put their hands on the head of these animals. Why? What's going on there? Are they just petting him and... You know, this is like a little petting zoo. No, no, there's more going on. What scholars believe was happening was it was a symbol of them transferring their guilt onto this animal. All of the guilt and condemnation that was deserved because of the sins of Aaron and his son was being transferred to this animal. And then what would happen to the animal? The animal then died as a consequence for the guilt and sin that had been transferred onto that animal. What's happening in that? Well, it's Aaron and his sons being made holy through that. Their sins being removed and transferred onto this animal so that it died as a substitute in place of Aaron and his sons, so that Aaron and his sons could be holy so that they could enter into the presence of God and offer sacrifices and worship on behalf of the people. 
But the blood of that animal signified that they were being cleansed and set apart, apart from sin, for this role of serving God as a priest. It's interesting, particularly with the final sacrifice, some of the symbolism. Look at chapter 29, verse 20. We'll start in verse 19. It says, And you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the side of the altar. I just want to ask at this point, why the ears, thumbs, toes, right? Like what's going on there? And what seems to be happening there is it's a it's a communicating something again, right? It all is communicating something. It's communicating that, that Aaron and his sons, their ears were to be cleansed and set apart to hear God's words. Their, their hands were to be cleansed and set apart to do God's work and service. Their feet were to be cleansed and set apart to walk in God's ways. Their whole body whole person was to be wholly cleansed, set apart for Yahweh by blood. Look at chapter 29, verse 21. He, the end of the verse, he and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his garments with them. All of them. They were to be holy. Can you see some connections with the gospel here, right? Our sin and guilt was, when we place our faith in Christ, it's as if we are putting our hands on Him and transferring our guilt to Him, our condemnation to Him. And through His death in our place as the ultimate sacrifice, we are forgiven cleansed, set apart. We're made holy, all of us, body and soul, devoted entirely to Him. Friend, if you have never trusted Jesus, I hope you see your need for what Jesus did. The only other option here is for you to bear your own sin. If Aaron and his sons do not put their hands on those animals to transfer their guilt so that the animal dies, well, what happens if they don't do that? They come into God's presence. Their sins have not been transferred onto that animal. Instead, they're still bearing their sins. They come into God's presence, and what happens to them? They're going to die. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 3. If you stand before a holy and living God on your own, you are in serious trouble. You need to look to Jesus. By faith, put your hands on Him to transfer all of your guilt. He will receive it unto Himself. He died in your place. Receive the forgiveness that He offers. 
Come to him now. Trust him with everything. Don't assume you can make up for your sin or somehow you can make a sacrifice for it. You can't. You can't pay for it. Only Jesus can take your sin and pay for your guilt completely. If that's you, if you've never trusted him, and God's working in your heart right now, you can simply ask him where you are. Ask him, Jesus, forgive me. Take my sin and my guilt and my shame and my condemnation. Take it all. Ask him, he will. And you will be forgiven and cleansed and set apart for God. If that's you, we'd love to talk more and pray with you. Please let us, let us know. Reach out. If you're a Christian, that's happened for you. Your guilt and shame and condemnation has been transferred. It's not on you anymore. And sometimes you wake up in the morning or you look back at your day and you've got to remember that, right? Because you're feeling it all on your shoulders. You're feeling that you, there's no way God can love you. You feel so condemned, and you have to go back and remember, no, at the cross, all of my guilt and shame and condemnation was transferred to Christ. And as Romans 8.1 says, there is now, right now, there is no condemnation for me. We have to remember that. Christian, there's another application here, too. It's a reminder that when we are cleansed, when our guilt is transferred, when we are thereby set apart, we are set apart for the Lord. We're no longer our, our own, right? As, as uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are bought with a price. And it's not just part of us, but all of us. It's not just occasionally, but always, right? It's, it's our ears and our, our, our hands and our feet. It's, it's our hearts. It's all of us was set apart for Christ, for His will, for His purposes. In fact, every Christian, we are called the kingdom of priests in 1 Peter, we could all walk around with a nameplate on our heads that says, holy to the Lord, set apart, made holy for the Lord, for His purposes, to live for Him and for His glory. In all of life, we are holy to the Lord bought by the blood of Jesus to now live for him. So priests are appointed, set apart, and number three, they are representatives. One of the things that becomes clear through the course of this entire section of Exodus is that not anyone could just saunter into the tabernacle. Um, you couldn't just walk in and, you know, have some of the bread off the table. Um, and you certainly couldn't walk in and, you know, have a seat in the Holy of Holies. It was a little bit like maybe CIA headquarters, right? Like, you need special clearance, right? And there wasn't a good way to fake it because God, God, God sees through counterfeits, right? <laughs> Only those who had been appointed and set apart and cleansed could draw near. And yet at the same time, what we see here is that there is a sense in which 
as the priests drew near, every time they drew near to God's presence, they were bringing the whole nation with them. The priests functioned as representatives of the people, as mediators or advocates of the people and for the people. Look back again at chapter 28, at these descriptions of the priestly garments. Remember the ephod, this apron-like thing, and these two shoulder pieces where there was two stones where the, the pieces of fabric were attached, and on these stones were engraved what? The names of the twelve tribes. Look again at chapter 28, verse 12. It says, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And if that wasn't enough, we have it almost repeated with the breast piece, right? Look at chapter 28, verse 29. So Aaron, he's talking about the rows of precious stones. Each one had a name of one of the tribes engraved on them. 28, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of, piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. What's the point of all this? And specifically, what's the point of this language of remembrance? Because that seems to be emphasized, right? These stones were somehow to remind somebody about the sons of Israel, about the people of Israel. The point here is that it was to remind God about the people of Israel. Now, it, let's be clear here. We're not reminding God in the sense of He forgot about them, right? Like, God doesn't need that. It's not like, you know... Me, where I forget one of my kids and leave them at church or something. I don't know. It, it, God doesn't forget His people. But the point, and you see this language often in Scripture, this idea of remembering is remembering in order to give attention to, in order to give favor, right? It's a remembering to take notice of them, to accept their sacrifices, to forgive their sins, to hear their prayers. That's the point here. As Aaron and his sons took these names, bore the names, and in bearing their names, bearing the people of Israel into the presence of God, they were asking God, notice your people. Love them. Accept their sacrifices. Hear their prayers. Forgive them. So imagine, here I am an Israelite, and I know I can't approach the living God. I know that I am stained with sin. I know what I deserve. I know I cannot safely draw near to God's presence, the infinitely holy God. I can't come near to Him. Yet, God has appointed a priest. He has provided cleansing for the priest. He has provided a substitutionary sacrifice for that priest. And this priest can draw near. Even though I can't, the priest can draw near to the infinitely holy God. The priest can go into his presence, and he draws near for me. He carries me with him in a sense. 
He carries me with Him as He makes sacrifices to atone for sin. He carries me with Him as He worships. He carries me with Him as He intercedes and prays. With Him, in Him in a sense, I can, I can draw near to the living God. Church, all of this is a shadow pointing brilliantly to Jesus Christ. He is a better priest who offered himself as a better sacrifice and who enters God's presence and speaks a better word on our behalf as a better representative for us. He is our mediator, our advocate, who goes into God's presence and brings us with him, advocates for us, mediates for us. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The set-apart one, the appointed one, the righteous one. He goes into the presence of the Father and advocates for us. Or Romans 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Who has a right to go into God's presence and to condemn us. Who has that right? To say, Tim is guilty. He deserves judgment. And I will carry out that judgment. Who has the right to do that? Jesus does. He's the righteous one. None of you have that right ultimately because you're not righteous yourselves. But Jesus is righteous and he has a right to do that. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? What does it say? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Christian, do you ever feel like you don't deserve for God to hear your prayers? Do you ever sin and feel like just hiding? You don't want to go to Him, you want to run away from Him because you know you've done wrong? Does the idea that you would get to enter God's presence kind of sound crazy to you sometimes? The truth is, when you feel like that, when you feel that condemned, when you feel that, unwor that unworthy to go into God's presence or to even pray, or when you feel like you need to hide instead of go to Him, there's truth there. <laughs> you aren't worthy. There's a sense in which you're right. But if you are in Christ, trusting in Him, hiding yourself in Him, and trusting in His sacrifice, looking to His cleansing, if that's the case, then you've already been carried into the Father's presence. Jesus has offered Himself for you. He has spoken up on your behalf. He has brought you near. You don't need to cower in the corner like you don't belong. You don't need to fear that you'll be discovered and thrown out. You are with Jesus. He has cleansed you. He has brought you before the Father. Because of that, the door is flung wide open. You have full and open access to the throne of grace. You are welcomed. You have a helper. You have a sympathetic high priest who is interceding for you. 
Church, let's believe this. Let's pray in light of this. Let's enjoy this. Let's rest in this. We have a high priest in Jesus Christ, appointed, set apart as our representative. Praise God. Let's pray together. Our Father, Lord, sink down into our hearts how lost and damned we would be if we just tried to enter your presence on our own. Help us to see how much better Jesus is. Oh, give us a sense of wonder we have a willing, faithful, and righteous high priest whom you appointed, who set apart to do your work, and who represents us as our advocate and intercessor. Thank you for a better high priest in Jesus Christ, for a better sacrifice in Jesus Christ, for a better word in Jesus Christ, for a better mediator in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we go to Him, may we depend on Him, may we walk in the confidence of knowing Him, and may we live as those who are set apart by Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.